This show is sponsored by Honey Road, serving Eastern Mediterranean small plates at the corner of Church and Main Street in downtown Burlington. Head chef Kara Tobin was a James Beard semifinalist in both 2018 and 2019. Plus, she and Allison, who own and run the restaurant, are just excellent people. If you're going out to dinner, go there. You won't be sorry. On to the show. Welcome to Rumble Strip. Confession. The month is only two days old, and already we have seen a circus and ridden a bicycle together. I wish I had never told a lie in my life. That's Garrett Kaiser reading one of his poems in a field in the late summer in the Northeast Kingdom. We found the right field after a couple hours driving around the kingdom, talking about poetry and Lake Willoughby and fishing spots. Look at that hedge. That's a commitment. Uh, That is the mother of all hedges. (laughs) We have a beautiful day for for a drive, don't we? I first heard of Garrett Kaiser a few years ago when I read his book, Getting Schooled, about his years as a high school teacher up here in the kingdom. He described this place where we both live more honestly and more humanely than anything I'd ever read about this place before. The humor, the poverty, the landscape. Garrett's written a number of books. He writes for Harper's Magazine and Mother Jones and a bunch of others, and is one of the only writers where I find myself copying whole passages down from his work, like I'll need them later. They're not always easy or nice things I copy down. Garrett Kaiser is one of the most critical and most contemplative people I've ever met. I write them down because they remind me of something fundamental about being human that I don't want to forget. Recently, he came out with a book of poetry called The World Pushes Back. So I got up the nerve to call him and see if he'd go for a drive and stand in a field and read poetry. And he did. And it was a perfect day for a drive. Here's Garrett Kaiser. Welcome. So, why are people scared of poetry? Well, I think there are a few reasons that people are, are, are afraid of poetry. First of all, in a utilitarian, production-driven capitalist society, any pursuit done for its own sake with no monetary reward is going to be suspect. I think that um, some people have been ruined for poetry by what's done to it in their education. So, you know, they sit down to do a poetry unit in their English class and are made to memorize and recite long passages and are made to analyze language in um, strained and strenuous ways. That would kill it for some people. and. As a former teacher, I may bear some guilt for that. And I think there's a question of, did the people abandon poetry or did the poets abandon the people? You know, when poetry became a a pursuit for the academy, when poetry readings moved from the bar room to the uh, university lecture hall, when we had poets in the rise of modernism who were almost made uneasy if an average person could figure out what in the hell they were talking about. 
And I'm not willing to lay all that in the laps of poets or, um, or even the academy, but it's a question akin to um, what gets asked whenever there's been a divorce. You know, who started this? You know, who cheated on whom? Who was the first person to turn cold? But, you know, there is a cultural component. You know, in some culture, I once heard a story, it may be apocryphal, of the Russian poet Yevtushenko visiting the United States and going into a clothing shop and after trying on a suit, asking, what's the poet's discount? Because apparently, at least as the story was told to me, in the Soviet Union, he could count on a little off the price by virtue of the fact that he was a poet. You know, I'd like to see even Billy Collins pull that one off uh, in the United States of America. Um, and perhaps that's one of the good things about America if what I'm talking about is a case of anti-elitism. But it may also be a ca case of just suspecting art and suspecting intelligence itself as somehow weak and unworthy. Anyway, enough or, or, pontification. Or weak and unworthy or just without value. Right. It doesn't contribute to anything. One of my favorite passages, which like most passages I quote, will probably be garbled by my bad memory, but William Carlos Williams says, it is difficult to get the news from poems, yet men die miserably every day for lack of what is found there. You know, what do you learn from a poem? What, what good is it? But it's good partly lies in the fact that there's no quick and easy answer to that question of what good is it, you know? What good is playing a board game with your kid in, in his pajamas on the edge of his bed, you know? I mean, it doesn't make any money, it doesn't cure cancer, it doesn't contribute to the gross national product. Maybe one of the things that poetry does is help to remind us of how many lovely, unpaid, unpriced things are of surpassing value and need to be cherished. But um, I, ho I hope that answers your question. It does. You can get a nice ice cream here too, sometimes. Traveling light. The older I get, the less I'm bothered by seeming incongruity. I read the Gospel of Mark listening to Billie Holiday. A young man runs away naked from the Garden of Gethsemane and Billy sings, I'm traveling light. Eventually you find the rhyme for every word. The night is coming, perhaps that's why, the color that goes with everything. yellow like fall. I mean, it's beginning to feel, the color is starting to look yeah. fall-like. I always feel a sense of renewed, of renewal and of renewed purpose in the fall, you know. 
this year I'm going to do it better. I'm going to do more of it and I'm going to do it better. I remember feeling that when I was teaching, you know, to take about three weeks for that to get knocked out of you good and solid, but, um, you know, that sense that I'm going to, I'm going to be on top of my case. I'm going to be a better human being. Do you ever worry, or this is something I think about a lot when I'm, when I'm making my show is, is sentimentalizing the place where I live. Um, I mean, I mean, sentimentality is always a danger, and so is its twin. I think it was Oscar Wilde who said sentimentality is the bank holiday of cynicism. And, um, and, and you know, I have propensities probably for both. But on the other hand, um, I'm not as quick as some others to damn all sentiment as sentimentality. Um, because you, you can become so cool that you're afraid to feel. And I refuse to be that cool. And if somebody wants to um, put me down for sentimentality, just stick around and I'll give you enough cold-hearted rage to qualify your judgments. But if I'm feeling affectionate about a place or the people I live with, Maybe it's because they deserve to be loved. And maybe it's because they've kept my heart from getting harder than it might otherwise have gotten. This Rose. road looks like it was just redone. Yeah, it, it must does. Have been a big trial. Yeah, we could go on Route 5 parallel to this, and you would think that all the fillings were coming loose from your teeth. And I maintain in my perverse, quasi-Marxist way that the reason for that is because the real estate along that road is less pricey. And so uh, it takes a little while longer for the road to be paved. You'll, you'll notice I've not said don't quote me on that. <laughs> Wolf Hall. It will take a little courage to finish this book that I do not want to end. I ration the pages as on certain nights I ration love, but passion draws us on. This life too, my woods, my work, to see the garden through to the stripped harvest, I can't even imagine my last look at the sea. But we must see the story to its end. Our passion draws us on. We lust for the finish. It takes courage to live, they tell me, which is true, though some of it comes down to the courage not to. <laughs> Yeah, you'd sort of hate the question then. Um, no, go ahead. Ask I mean, it. that what what does faith have to do with writing for you? Well, that's a very complex question, but it's an essential question, and I could never hate that question without hating my life itself. As the late 
Lou Reed says in one of his songs, you need a busload of faith to get by. And you do, whether you have conventional religious faith or not, you need the faith that you're able to make some sense through words. You need the faith that somebody is going to find enjoyment or value in the words you write that you can even be worthy of whatever little gift you have. You know, we all have a gift, but we can let the gift down. I'm very fond of a, a quotation by Tony Bennett, who, uh, who, when asked whether he had ever tried marijuana, said that he never had for fear that he would be sinning against his talent. And the quote sticks in my mind, not so much because, you know, he didn't want to try marijuana or he decided not to, but rather that he had that sense of his talent as something that could be sinned against, which on the one hand sounds like incredible arrogance or hubris or ego, and on the other hand is expressive of the most sublime humility, that I have been given a talent and that I could by a decision of mine, sin against that talent. So it takes faith to believe your talent, whatever it is, is worthy enough that it could be sinned against. And I think a lot of people get in trouble in this world because they don't believe they have any talent that could be sinned against or even any personal value that could be sinned against. The beginning of sanity is the recognition that we are holy. And it takes a hell of a lot of honesty and humility to admit that to yourself and then to act on it. It's so much easier to believe that you're defiled and dirty and then just to do whatever the hell you want than to actually recognize that you are sacred. And, you know, part of that is that you need to respect yourself and other people need to respect you. Faith grows out of that sense that we don't see everything clearly. Faith grows out of the recognition that some things can only be grasped by faith. They can't be produced by a scientific experiment. They can't be de demonstrated by your accountant with double entry bookkeeping, that there are aspects of reality that elude that. And that means that the value of what you have to say is also somewhat out of your hands. And you have to trust that the justification of what you've done is not your affair. You know, as Krishna says to Arjuna in the Bhagavad Gita that, you know, you have to let go of the effects and really do what your duty is. And, um, and I learned that teaching. I learned that teaching when I learned that you might think you had a profound influence on a student's life and another student you may scarcely remember. But it's that second student who comes to you 15 years later and says, you know, you said something in uh, English class that changed my life. And you don't remember, you scarcely remember the student. You don't remember saying that thing, but that was a value. And other things maybe you thought were a value were not. 
a man wrote me a letter about my least favorite book and told me that it helped him through a terrible time in his life that followed the accidental shooting of his daughter by police officers. And I thought to myself, you know what? I don't think it's such a hot book, but I'm glad I wrote it and now I know why. But often you don't know why. So you saddle up your horse, you put the key in the ignition, and you get going, and that is the Aldrich's General Store, which was a store. Look at those light bulbs. I love those light bulbs. The details. If God is love and God is in the details, then love is in the details too, is in the way I trim these crabgrass tassels after mowing your father's lawn. Two kids kiss on a dark back porch and a lawn gets mowed. Thirty years later, love makes the world go round. Love makes the world. That was Garrett Kaiser. His new book of poetry is called The World Pushes Back. Garrett is also a contributing editor at Harper's Magazine and the author of eight books of prose. His poems, essays, and short stories have appeared in The New Yorker, Lapham's Quarterly, and a number of others. And you can go hear him read from his new book of poetry in Burlington on September 27th. He's giving the headlining reading at the opening ceremony of the Burlington Book Festival held at Contoy's Auditorium. The opening ceremony starts at 7. He'll probably start reading around 7.30. Music for this show is by Vermont musician and my friend Brian Clark. Again, the show is sponsored by the excellent people at Honey Road at the corner of Church and Main Street in Burlington, where you can meet for dinner at, say, 5.30 before Garrett's reading on September 27th. Uh, but make a reservation. I also have a lot of t-shirts for sale. Um, a slightly new design. The, the shirt now says Rumble Strip on the front, and on the back it says It's a Podcast. It's just a little change up. I think it's working really well, so there's a, a way to buy a t-shirt on my website. Uh, and if you want to just make a donation, that also would be great. This is Rumble Strip. I'm Erica Heilman. Thanks a lot for listening. <laughs>